Let me begin with a story that may at first seem unrelated to what I've just read, but I will, I promise, make the connection for you. It's a story not about Jeremiah or anything from that era in history. It's a story about a man named Hudson Taylor. Perhaps that name is familiar to you, particularly if you've studied missions at all, if you went through the perspectives course at one time, uh, as many of us have done, or if you've read anything about the the history of Christian missions. Hudson Taylor, uh, who lived from 1832 to 1905, was a pioneer in the modern missions movement. And his efforts in inland China literally changed that nation and touched the lives of countless thousands of people with the gospel. Have you ever wondered how it is that a person like Hudson Taylor, who first showed up in China as a 21-year-old, how it, how it is that some, somebody like him could have such a profound impact on a nation like China? There are many reasons that might be suggested as answers to that question. But the one I want to draw your attention to this morning, the one that I find most compelling, might actually surprise you. Why and how did God choose to use a man like Hudson Taylor? Well, I recently came across a story from the life of Hudson Taylor, this famous mission pioneer, and it's a story that took place before he ever went to China, and it had a formational impact in his life. Listen closely to his own words from a journal entry describing this experience that he had while he was still living in London and apprenticed to a Dr. Brown. He writes, The Lord had given me the joy of winning souls before, wrote Hudson Taylor, recalling this experience, but never in surroundings of such peculiar difficulty. With God, however, all things are possible, and no conversion ever takes place save by the almighty power of the Holy Ghost. The great need of every Christian worker is to know God. And I was now to prove his willingness to answer prayer for spiritual blessing under the most unpromising circumstances, and thus to gain an increased acquaintance with the prayer-answering God as the one mighty to save. A short time before leaving for China, it became my duty to dress the foot of a patient suffering from gangrene. The disease commenced as usual insidiously, and the patient had little idea that he was a a doomed man and probably had not long to live. I was not the first to attend to him When the case was transferred to me, I naturally became very anxious about his soul. The family with whom he had lived were Christians, and from them I learned that he was an avowed atheist and very antagonistic to anything religious. They had, without asking his consent, invited a scripture reader to come and visit him. But in great passion, he had ordered the man from his room. The vicar of the district had also called upon him, hoping to help, but he had spit in his face and refused to allow him to speak. His temper was described to me as very violent, 
and altogether, uh, the case seemed as hopeless as could well be imagined. Upon first commencing to attend to him, I prayed much about it. But for two or three days, I said nothing of a religious nature. By special care in dressing his diseased limb, I was able considerably to lessen his sufferings, and he soon began to manifest appreciation of my services. One day, with a trembling heart, I took advantage of his grateful acknowledgments to tell him what was the spring of my action and to speak of his solemn position and his need of God's mercy through Christ. It was evidently only a powerful effort of will restraint that kept his lips closed. He turned over in bed with his back toward me and uttered no word. I could not get this poor man out of my mind. And very often, through each day, I pleaded with God by his Spirit to save him. After dressing the wound and relieving the pain, I never failed to say a few words to him which I hoped that the Lord would bless. But he always turned his back, looking annoyed, though he never made any reply. After continuing this for some time, my heart sank. It seemed to me that I was not only doing no good, but perhaps I was really hardening him and increasing his guilt. One day, after dressing his limb and washing my hands, instead of washing my hands, I'm sorry, instead of returning to uh, the bedside, I went to the door. And I stood, hesitating for a moment, with the thought in my mind, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Looking at my patient, I saw his surprise, as it was the first time since opening the subject that I had attempted to leave without saying a few words for my master. But I could bear it no longer. Bursting into tears, I crossed the room and said to him, My friend, whether you will hear or whether you will forbear, I must deliver my soul. And I went on to speak very earnestly, telling him how much I wished that he would let me pray with him. To my unspeakable joy, he did not turn away, but replied, If it will be a relief to you, then do it. I need scarcely say that falling upon my knees, I poured out my soul to God on his behalf. Then and there, I believe, the Lord wrought a change in his soul. He was never afterward unwilling to be spoken to and prayed with, and within a few days, he definitely accepted Christ as his Savior. Oh, the joy it was to me to see that dear man rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. He told me that for 40 years he had never darkened the door of a church or chapel, and that then, 40 years ago, he had only entered a place of worship to be married and could not be persuaded to go inside when his wife was buried. Now, thank God, his sin-stained soul, I had every reason to believe, was washed and sanctified 
was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Often in my early work in China, when circumstances rendered me almost hopeless of success, I have thought of this man's conversion and have been encouraged to persevere in speaking the word, whether men would hear or whether they would forbear. The now happy sufferer lived for some time after this change and was never tired of hearing test- bearing testimony to the grace of God. Though his condition was most distressing, the alteration in his character and behavior made the previously painful duty of attending to him one of real pleasure. I have often thought since, in connection with this, uh, with this man and the work of God generally, of, of the words from Psalm 126, He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Perhaps if there were none of that intense distress for souls that leads to tears, if there were more of that intense distress for souls that leads to tears, we should more frequently see the results we desire. Sometimes it may be that while we are complaining of the hardness of the hearts of those that we're seeking to benefit, the hardness of our own hearts and our own feeble apprehension of the solemn reality of eternal things may be the true cause of our lack of success. So Hudson Taylor was motivated by the words of Psalm 126. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. That became a passage of Scripture that defined and directed the ministry of Hudson Taylor when he left for China. But long before that, Psalm 126, many people believe, was likely written by those returning to Jerusalem after the exile to Babylon. Many, many years before Hudson Taylor lived. In fact, this was a psalm that spoke of turning tears to joy, and it was written about the very things that brought Jeremiah to tears. So I share this story with you about Hudson Taylor to get you thinking with me this morning about the power and the value of tears. That might surprise you. And it's not something, frankly, that I've thought much about or talked much about over the course of 17 years of preaching the gospel. I can't remember if I've ever preached a message on the subject of tears before, let alone a series. But today, we're beginning a new study for the summer months through the Old Testament prophetic book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, like Hudson Taylor, was a man of many tears. Contrary to the popular notion that real men don't cry, trust me, Jeremiah and Hudson Taylor cried a lot in the presence of God. And it was a powerful indicator that they had tapped into the compassionate heart of God. What was behind those tears is compelling. 
Several things, as you'll soon discover, brought Jeremiah to tears. But the question I'm wondering about as we begin this journey into the life and ministry of Jeremiah, the question I'm wondering about is what it might take to bring us to tears before the throne of God. And I'm not now referring to your own hardships in life. It's a little easier to cry over those sometimes. But as with the example of Hudson Taylor, I'm referring to the needs of others. When's the last time you found yourself weeping before the throne of God for the needs of another person, the brokenness of another person? There's a famous quote from another missionary to China named Robert Pierce, and he put it this way, suggesting that we should all pray and ask, Lord, let my heart be broken with the things that break yours. So what I'm hoping and praying for into our time together as we study Jeremiah over the next few months is that the Lord would use the example of Jeremiah, that is Jeremiah's broken heart, to teach us something about the heart of God. But before we get to the circumstances that brought Jeremiah to tears, we have to start with a little bit of background, a little bit of helpful history, if you will to put Jeremiah's life and ministry in its proper context. Now, when I say the word history, I imagine there are probably a few of you out there that already feel your eyes start to glaze over, right? And you're already, you know, thinking about checking out. Oh, no, here we go, history. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But let me just encourage you to hang in there and press in with me for the next few minutes. I'll try to keep it short and sweet. But you have to know that understanding the context of the book of Jeremiah helps to orient you toward understanding the words of Jeremiah and the heart behind those words. So let me take you back in time for a few minutes to set the stage for Jeremiah's calling as a prophet. Let's begin here. Jeremiah's prophetic ministry took place just before the Babylonians overthrew the kingdom of Judah in the year 586 B.C. 586 B.C. is a huge date in the history of God's people. It was a very sad day when the Babylonians finally overthrew Jerusalem after their third attempt, their third attack on the city over the course of time. They came in, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple of God, and they carried away most of the Jewish people into exile. It was that experience that Jeremiah was prophesying about before it took place. He knew it was coming. And God had called him and raised him up to deliver a word of warning to the people of God. Take a quick look with me at Jeremiah 1, 1 to 3, and you see the beginning of the story and how it sets the life and ministry of Jeremiah in historical context. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now, you know, 
those three verses are, are not the kind of verses that you're going to want to commit to memory. Right? Those three verses are not the kind of verses that you're going to want to spend a lot of time meditating on. But they're helpful background information because they tell us when Jeremiah lived and what was happening when he lived. In fact, these verses specifically point out or mention by name three of the kings of Judah that lived during the life and ministry of Jeremiah. There were actually five kings of Judah, and these verses only mention three because those were the three that had the greatest impact and reigned for the longest period of time. The other two, which were kind of intermediate kings, only lived and reigned on the throne of Judah for three months each, a very short reign in political terms. So let me help you visualize this by... uh, flashing up a timeline for you to think about. And it's a little hard to see because actually, truth be told, our projector bulb went out and we're, we're using a temporary replacement. But if you can uh, try to look at this the best you can, we'll dim the lights. And uh, it's a little hard to understand. It's kind of complicated. But I just want to point out to you a couple key things about the life and ministry of Jeremiah. So if you look about the middle of the chart, you'll see... Uh, two blue lines with a green line in the middle, and the, and the name Jeremiah in between them. That line, that blue and green line that stretches from about 629 B.C. to about 586 B.C. represents the life and ministry of Jeremiah. Now what you'll see down below in large green blocks are the names of the kings of Judah during this era, era in history. So you'll see that when Jeremiah began his ministry, Josiah was king of Judah, and then Jehoahaz uh, reigned for three months, and then Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah, who was the king of Judah during the Babylonian exile. What's fascinating about this is that um, Josiah is the only one of the five kings who was good and righteous, the only one who sought God, the only one who was a good and godly leader over God's people. And for that reason, God's judgment upon his people was stalled for a period of time. And uh, during Josiah's lifetime, God decided not to execute judgment upon the land of Judah. Here's what we read in 2 Chronicles 34, 1 and 2 about Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So Josiah was a righteous king, but his descendants, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, were not good or godly kings. They were men who allowed the people of Judah to indulge in idolatry. So, Jehoiakim uh, reigned for 11 years. He was Jehoahaz's older brother who was installed uh, by and allied with the pharaoh of Egypt at that time named Necho II. Um, Then Jehoiakim took over for three months. He was Jehoiakim's son, uh, and he too was made king at only eight years old. And then Zedekiah reigned on the throat of Judah for 10 years uh, from 597 to 586 B.C., And he was the king when Jeremiah's prophetic warnings were fulfilled and Judah was overthrown by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now, one other quick thing that's helpful about this diagram 
is, uh, if you look closely, and I know it's hard to read, but you can see the names of several other prophets. I don't need it, thanks. Um, you can see the names of several other prophets that were contemporaries of Jeremiah and ministered at the same time as Jeremiah. Particularly, if you look closely, you'll see the names kind of overlapping in terms of when they ministered, um, the, the names of two major prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, and several minor prophets, Nahum, Joel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Obadiah. So this is a time of um, significant ministry among the prophets of the Old Testament. There were seven or eight different prophets that were speaking to, to the people of God on his behalf during this era in history. And this tells us basically that God had a lot to say to his people about what was happening historically at that time. And uh, Jeremiah, in fact, is generally recognized as the second greatest prophet of the Old Testament behind only Isaiah. And if you didn't know this already, according to Jewish tradition, not only did Jeremiah write the book named after him, the prophetic book, but he also is recognized as the author of First and Second Kings and the book of Lamentations as well. So there you go. You can wake up again now. We're, we're on to the good stuff, okay? That's your historic context for the ministry, life and ministry of Jeremiah. So that brings us then to the next couple of verses in the text from Jeremiah chapter 1 and a secondary insight. And this is really where I want to focus your attention this morning, on Jeremiah's calling as a prophet. What does it mean to be called as a prophet? How does that work? What is prophecy? Is prophecy still at work here and now in the life of the church? There are lots of questions that are provoked by the story of Jeremiah and are significant for us to think about together. So what I want you to see here is that Jeremiah, prophets like Jeremiah even, were chosen, called, and anointed to serve God by seeing and saying what God intended to do. That's essentially the role or the job description of a prophet. It's to see and to say what God intends to do. And Jeremiah was chosen, called, and anointed for that specific purpose. So look with me at Jeremiah 1, 4-9, and you'll see the description of his calling. Even as a young teenager, God called him as a prophet. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, I don't know what you make of this, but I find this fascinating. It's a fascinating description of Jeremiah's calling because it highlights some very interesting and unusual things. For example, and in particular, notice that God chose Jeremiah even before he was born. Ever before he, he breathed his first breath, 
The description here echoes the well-known verses of Psalm 139 that many of us are familiar with, but it adds to them something even more amazing. God doesn't just know us as he knits us together in our mother's wombs. Think of how amazing this is. God actually sets some people apart, as he did Jeremiah, before they ever take their first breath, to be his servants, his workers, his ambassadors, his messengers. Jeremiah didn't appoint himself to be prophet. He didn't wake up one day and think to himself, you know, I think I want to be a prophet when I grow up. No. Somehow, Jeremiah discovered this calling on his life because God spoke it to him. And he heard the word of the Lord. In fact, if you look all the way back to the very beginning of this account in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me, he writes, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah as a young man, probably a teenager, and he responded. He responded with fear and apprehension, of course. His first thought was, no way, I'm not qualified, I can't do this. Can anybody relate? But then he responded with obedience. He responded to the call of God. Before he could ever hear God speak uh, to him a message for others, Jeremiah had to hear God speak to him personally. So friends, can I just pause for a note, a moment on that note, and invite you to, to consider the precedent here. Think about how this worked in Jeremiah's life and what might apply to your own relationship with the Lord. This is an example of why we talk so often in the vineyard about hearing and discerning the voice of God. Because the Bible portrays for us a God who speaks into the lives of men and women directly and personally. Right? So before these words in verses 4 and 5 could speak to us as the written word of God, they were spoken directly and personally to Jeremiah. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah heard and responded. So while our calling may not be the same as Jeremiah's, my conviction is that God is still the same, right? He's still the same God, and he still works in the same ways. He still speaks to people. Yes, of course, he speaks through the written word of God, and that is authoritative in all that it has to teach us. But we believe, on the basis of examples like this, that, that God communicates personally and directly, sometimes, with his people. So, yes, give yourself to the reading of the word and the study of the word. That's vitally important to your growth as a follower of Jesus. But give yourself as well to the practice of learning to hear the voice of God. Give yourself to the practice of listening and inviting God to speak to you personally. Because that was the foundation of Jeremiah's ministry. Now, here it might be helpful to bear in mind some things about the gift of prophecy and how it works. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
that's described throughout Scripture and exemplified throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it's a gift specifically that enables people, like Jeremiah, first to hear God speak so that they can then, in turn, relay God's message to other people, right? So Jeremiah, as a prophet, was an intermediary. His job was to hear God speak and then convey what he heard to the people on God's behalf. That's what prophecy was, and that's what prophecy still is today. It's simply the relaying of a message from God. But there's something important that has changed about how prophecy works now under the new covenant of grace and the Spirit. You know what it is? This might surprise you. Are you ready for this? Prophecy, as the prophet Joel foretold, and as Peter explained on the day of Pentecost, is actually much more available and accessible to us now than it ever was during the Old Testament era. It's more common. It should be more common, not less common. Listen to these words from Acts 2, 17 to 18, where Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel and saying, these words of Joel have been fulfilled in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the last days, Joel said, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Do you see the significance of those words? What Peter is essentially saying is that with the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost, the gift of prophecy became available to every follower of Jesus. So realize that Peter is explaining how these words of Joel's were actually fulfilled or began to be fulfilled when the Spirit was poured out. In other words, because each one of us as followers of Jesus has the presence of the Spirit dwelling within us, we have greater access to the power of the Spirit and the gifts of, of the Spirit than was ever available during the Old Covenant. This is, this is an invitation. This is good news. This is why Paul could say with all sincerity in 1 Corinthians 14.5, listen to this, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. I mean, just dial that down to its bare essence and think about the fact that Paul is saying, I would like every single one of you to operate in the gift of prophecy. Do you find those words inviting? Maybe a little bit intimidating. Maybe you can relate to Jeremiah's feeling, well, I, don't know, I don't know how to speak for you, Lord. I'm too young. Or maybe there's some other excuse. But what Peter and Paul are inviting us into 
is an exercise of the gift of prophecy in the Spirit that speaks to others on God's behalf for their encouragement, for their edification, for their building up, right? And that's a beautiful thing when it works. Have you ever thought about wanting to receive and develop an ability from the Holy Spirit to speak to other people on God's behalf? I'm hoping that this will be part of the fruit of studying the life and ministry of a great prophet like Jeremiah, that it would stir in us a hunger to experience prophecy and how it works. I believe God wants to raise the bar in all of our lives so that we might be ready and willing to speak to people on God's behalf for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. But the key to all of that begins with hearing. You can't speak to others on God's behalf if you can't hear God speak. And what's fascinating about this account, where the next verses take us, is to a specific description of how God released that gift to Jeremiah and how it functioned in his life. This is very practical and very insightful if you stop and think about it. So, look at the examples here of how Jeremiah saw things and heard things, and think about how that might work in your own life if you're to experience the gift of prophecy by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to point out here that I don't believe when we read something like, the word of the Lord came to me, that Jeremiah means to say that he literally heard the audible voice of God. I think that can happen. It does happen occasionally, but it's unusual. It's rare. Typically, the word of the Lord comes to someone in their thoughts, in their mind, right? So as we read an account like this, when Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me, I think you can interpret that to mean God gave me a clear impression. God gave me the thought that this is what he wants me to know. And I received it as his word. It wasn't audible. It was a word to the spirit, to the heart, right? And so we sang a song earlier about um, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, right? So that I can see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. What does that mean? How do we have eyes in our heart? They're the eyes of the spirit. Not the eyes of the flesh, the eyes of the spirit. And in the same way, I think we could say we have ears in the spirit as well, Right? Eyes and ears in the Spirit don't have to do with literally seeing and hearing things in the natural realm. They have to do with discerning things in the spiritual realm. So look at the description of how this worked for Jeremiah in verses 11 to 14. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? Again, I take that to mean he's, he's, he's having an interaction with the Spirit of God. He's thinking, and he senses God saying to him, not audibly, but in the Spirit, Jeremiah, what do you see? What do you see? And I don't think at this point he's looking with his eyes wide open and actually seeing something physical in the flesh. I think he's seeing here with the eyes of his Spirit. What does he see? I see the branch of an almond tree. 
He's in the presence of the Lord, praying, interacting with the Spirit. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree. It's a vision, a vision of an almond tree. And then the thought comes to him. The word of the Lord comes. The explanation, the interpretation of the vision comes. You've seen correctly, for I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Do you see the connection? The branch of an almond tree represents fruitfulness. I'm presuming here that he sees the almonds on the tree, right? Fulfillment is the word, the key word. It's a symbol, right? The branch of an almond tree is a symbol of fulfillment. And so that's the word of interpretation and explanation that he receives in the Spirit. The Lord said to me, you've seen correctly, for I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. He's given the interpretation of the vision. Then it happens again, a second time. The word of the Lord came to me, what do you see? Jeremiah responds, I, 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 see, I see a pot that's boiling, and it's tilting toward us from the north. Well, what's that? What does that represent? Again, it's a symbol, and he sees it in the spirit. And then he gets the interpretation from the Lord. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. So what do these examples show us and teach us about how spiritually um, seeing or hearing actually works? Again, they show us that the Lord often chooses to speak in the language of symbols which is how the Hebrew people often thought and spoke. It's very typical of, of their language and, and their way of seeing things and explaining things. So Jeremiah sees an almond branch, and it represents the concept of fulfillment. The word of interpretation he hears from the Spirit is that God's watching to see that his word's fulfilled. Then he sees a pot that's boiling and tilted toward Judah and Jerusalem from the north. And he's given, again, an interpretation of that vision. Disaster is impending. And it's coming from the nations to the north of Judah. So the language of the Spirit of God is often symbolic like this, where we're given a picture of something that actually represents something else. And we have to trust the Holy Spirit for understanding and interpretation. Now let me clarify one last misconception here about prophecy uh, that I think is important to address. Prophecy is not always about seeing or predicting the future. Sometimes it can be, but it's not always about predicting the future. There are two words that are often used in this sense to describe the prophetic gifting and how it works. To foretell is to prophesy about something that is to happen, and to forthtell is simply to speak about the way God sees things here and now. So there's foretelling and forthtelling. Subtle but important distinction between the two. So there can be an element of foretelling, something that will or could happen. Often prophetic words in Scripture that way are conditional. If you don't repent, then this will happen. But oftentimes those words are just forthtelling. They're, they're giving us God's perspective on a present reality. It's like the curtain gets drawn back and suddenly we can see the mind of God regarding a particular situation in our life or in our nation. 
So the difference is that foretelling is simply speaking the heart and mind of God into a present circumstance. It's a word of encouragement that carries with it the weight of God's approval and blessing. Now we're going to talk a lot more about how this works over the weeks to come as we look at the example of Jeremiah. But uh, I want you to just know that I believe the clear teaching of Scripture from Ephesians 4 and from other places is that there are still prophets who speak on God's behalf in our day and age. So think of it like a spectrum, right? There's the sense in which any one of us as a follower of Jesus can from moment to moment operate in the gift of prophecy and receive a prophetic word or a message for someone else. And then there are people that have developed that gift and upon whom a calling has been issued to serve in that role or that office, and they are given the office of prophet by Jesus himself. That's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. So there's a spectrum here from people that are just learning how to prophesy to people that are operating in the office of prophet and are recognized as able or capable of hearing the voice of God and speaking on God's behalf. Now, let me wrap this up with one last point here. We've just got a few moments left. But I want to I get to the bottom line here uh, to help you think in advance of where we're going. What was the essential message of Jeremiah? At the risk of oversimplifying a book that's 52 chapters long, let me try to sum up for you what God wanted Jeremiah to say in just a sentence. The basic message of Jeremiah was a word of warning that God's judgment was at hand unless his people would repent of their idolatry. So it's a word of warning that judgment is at hand. Now, of course, uh, there are some promises in Jeremiah, some fantastic promises about the new covenant and about God's plans. You know, many of us are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a future and a hope, uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. There are others like that, great promises from Jeremiah that we can grab hold of that give us great hope for the future. But the essence of Jeremiah, as you'll find with me over the weeks and months to come, the essence of it is essentially a warning. Jeremiah was called by God to warn God's people that they needed to to turn back to God and repent from their idolatry. So you might think that that's not a particularly positive message to spend the summer thinking about, but let me encourage you to press in, nevertheless, uh, because there's a lot to be learned from the the life and the ministry of Jeremiah. Um, Some of the words that that he spoke, of course, don't apply directly to us at this time in history, but many of them do. Many of them we can, we can learn from and we can find application together as we study his life and ministry. Here's the essence of his message at the end of chapter 1. Basically, as the Lord called him into prophetic ministry, the Lord gave Jeremiah a sense of what he was going to have to do and say. And we're given a summary, really at the, at the very end of chapter 1, that kind of condenses the whole of the book into a few verses. Look with me as we wrap this up at verses 14 to 19. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. 
I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. And then he gives this charge to Jeremiah. And here, you know, I would just, I would just say, I think that part of this can apply for us. I think, you know, though Jeremiah had a different type of calling and a different era in which he was called the minister, we all need courage, don't we? To speak for God into the world around us. And the Lord says to Jeremiah at the end of chapter 1, get ready. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today, I have made you a fortified city. Here's some more symbolic language. I have made you an iron pillar. I've made you a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. What these verses do, in simple terms, is they foreshadow where the story of Jeremiah's life and ministry is headed. They lay out for him, and they lay out for us as well, what God wanted Jeremiah to say on his behalf, and how difficult that would be. Jeremiah had an extraordinarily difficult job, and that's part of why he became known as the weeping prophet. You see, the problem was people wanted to believe that God would never forsake his people and allow Jerusalem to be overtaken or allow the temple to be destroyed. That's what they wanted to believe. But Jeremiah was meant to proclaim that such destruction was God's just punishment for the ongoing idolatry of his people. So this is a classic case of of being the bearer of bad news. Nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news, but that was God's calling on the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah found himself in the unenviable position of being chosen to deliver a really difficult message. And that's why he became known as the weeping prophet. He wept with God and on God's behalf over the sins of God's people, over the hard-heartedness of God's people. He wept with God and on God's behalf for the discipline and the destruction that was headed toward God's people. He wept over the discipline that was to be exacted upon them because they had broken covenant with God. He wept over the destruction that was coming to Jerusalem. And he wept even to some extent over the extreme difficulty of his own calling as a prophet. I want to close with a video that really kind of captures the essence of Jeremiah's identity and calling as the weeping prophet, and then we'll pray together in just a moment.
Yeah, it's interesting that Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet, and I think part of there's really two reasons for that. Part of it is the grief that Jeremiah senses over the destruction of the people and um, this terrible judgment. He's seeing what God is going to do. Uh, in Jeremiah 9, he pictures death climbing through the window. And so uh, even in that chapter, Jeremiah says, I, I wish that my head uh, were a fountain of... Uh, uh, were a fountain so that I could weep constantly for my people. As a prophet, Jeremiah doesn't just proclaim God's message. He embodies God's message and in a, in a physical way allows the people to see what God feels about the sorrow uh, of having to judge them and having to destroy them. Um, in another sense, Jeremiah experiences what the people are going through and so he feels their grief and their sadness as well. So in a sense, he's really kind of a mediator between uh, God and Israel. And he feels both what God feels and what Israel feels. A second reason why Jeremiah is a weeping prophet is that in chapter 11 to 20, we have a number of prayers uh, from Jeremiah to God that are called Jeremiah's confessions. And basically in those prayers, Jeremiah pours out his heart to God and uh, expresses his frustration, his anger. God, why have you called me to this ministry where I've done nothing but be faithful to you? And as a result of that, I've experienced all kinds of persecution. Uh, I, I have people that are plotting against my life. God, why have you done this to me? And even in one place, he accuses God of being uh, a deceptive brook who has sort of tricked him into going into ministry. So part of it uh, as well is the, the, the sorrow, the sadness, the grief that Jeremiah feels uh, over the persecution and the opposition that he's experienced. And I think for both of those reasons, uh, understanding Jeremiah as a weeping prophet is, uh, is a very good way to envision his ministry. Let's come full circle here as we finish up this morning. And so I encourage you to join with us as we take this journey together into the life and ministry of Jeremiah and really into the heart, the broken heart of Jeremiah. And as we take this journey, I want to remind you, and I will remind you over the course of the summer, of that request that I shared at the beginning of the message today. It's a significant request for us to think about and to pray into. Let me put that up on the screen as we conclude this morning. It's the last point. Four. Lord, would you break our hearts with the things that break your heart? That, my friends, describes the life and ministry of Jeremiah. But the question is, have you ever invited the Lord to do that for you? Have you ever welcomed the living God to break your heart with the things that break his heart? If you'll journey into the heart of Jeremiah with that desire, with that question, with that prayer, God's going to do some great things. He's going to speak to us. He's going to show us some things. And he's going to give us his heart. It's powerful when that happens. It's difficult. It's painful. You may even find yourself brought to tears 
But if they're the tears of God, then embrace that experience and let it change your life. Let's pray.